Gresham College presents Explaining Discount Rates with Mini Case Studies by Matthew Rees. We're very happy to be here. Um, what I thought I'd do is just introduce the, the NEO briefly and myself and then take you through some case studies. Uh, so the NEO is not quite as old as Gresham College. We're celebrating, I think, 150th anniversary this year. It goes back to some Victorian engineering uh, to do with William Gladstone, who set up the, uh, the Accountability Act back in 1866. So um, we're with a state's auditor, we're, we're a little bit like a mid-sized audit firm, but we have the privilege of writing reports for the House of Commons which get debated in quite, uh, quite severe, surreal, sometimes detail, um, over the Public Accounts Committee. Um, I've been there a couple of years, um, I have a background that covers accounting and banking um, and, and uh, some time in the Competition Commission as well. Uh, and it's actually been a great privilege to work there and worked on actually most of the reports that you have up there. Um, so what, what I thought I'd do is, um, I wasn't going to dwell on some of the points that people have made before, but certainly wanted just to recap on, on the, um, the Treasury's Green Book methodology, but actually introduce um, the, uh, the government's own um, marshmallow taste, which is the impatience which comes with asset sales. Uh, which we'll certainly see in the context of Royal Mail and Eurostar. Um, and then we'll think a little bit about the incentives that go behind that. Um, so just, just up there, I mean, I'm not going to read out the same quote. It is the same quote, I think, um, but people prefer to see, receive goods uh, earlier rather than later. Um, but that, that guidance is worth reading if, you, if you're interested in investing and building stuff. It's a little bit more difficult when you get to the idea that government likes to sell stuff which is a supplementary piece of guidance, which ends up with a rather difficult conundrum about the fact that government's got the lowest cost of capital and therefore it should hold on to everything and perhaps consume the rest of the private sector as well. Um, and indeed, as we kind of look through the public sector landscape, that blurring of public and private sector is, is rather perplexing, to say the least. Um, so we've got the same issue there about the discount rate. But actually, government is a short-term impatient character at the moment, and it likes to sell stuff. So it does actually advocate using market discount rates when it comes to selling assets. Um, I do certainly don't recommend this, this guidance as a piece of um, robust and academically peer-reviewed um, work. It, it, I would certainly say Treasury has reluctantly um, avoided any sort of review of this. We, we recommended another time again in our Eurostar report that it's, it's reviewed. Uh, it's up to the government to respond to our recommendations when the Public Accounts Committee reinforces them. So we're in a sort of strange um, a parliamentary accountability cycle that, that involves us saying sensible things, hopefully, and the government responding in its own, its own way. Um, I should probably emphasise we're completely independent of the government and get our money from the House of Commons, but we're it's still taxpayers' money at the end of the day. So, um, so one of the case studies, and, I, and I'm not going to go through you know, all the slides in detail, but one, one of the problems that you've got when you think about valuing a business is whether the cash flows are going to go up, down, or somewhere about the same. And that's exactly the problem that, that Royal Mail um, set for the, for the government, is what's this thing going to be if it's sold to the private sector? And of course... There's a, there's a very strong argument to say, you know, if you release a business from the uh, arm of the state, it'll do much better in the future. It'll have all that kind of commercial freedom and flexibility. And, of course, that means the profits and the cash flow are going to go up. Uh, that's certainly underlying the, the valuation of, of raw mail, a very strong upward trajectory. Um, 
And that really sends back to some government reviews which were done by uh, a chap called Hooper, which uh, introduced the, the concept. Uh, you've just got a chart there from, from one of the reports. and you, you, All of these reports are on, on the internet, so you, you can look at them later. Um, so that, that's fundamental evaluation of the future uh, of the business. And then we've got the problem, actually, that it's not, life isn't that easy. And so this, this is stepping across to the Eurostar um, case, which we just looked at. And you've got different lines there showing how many passengers are going to use the Eurostar uh, line going through the tunnel. And then the earliest forecast was clearly wildly optimistic at a point where the private sector was going to finance this thing. And unfortunately, the actual results were much lower and, and the business had to be bailed out by the government. Um, as time has gone on, curiously, the actual passenger numbers, it's, uh, I'm not going to go through the colours there, but take it from me, you know, things, things, as things went on, the forecast got a little bit closer to the truth. And just at the point of sale, the actual um, passengers up here, there, there's an information memorandum that explains that there'll be an, a further growth in passenger numbers. But we're getting much more confident now about how many people want to use the, the service. But of course, you just don't know what's going to happen in the future. So there's new trains coming in, and there's possibility that Deutsche Bahn might run some trains through. Who knows what Michael O'Leary was thinking about there, but you know, he's, uh, he certainly, I think, was one of the major reasons why the forecasts were off, because nobody predicted the growth of low-cost uh, air travel. So the summary of that is it is really quite hard to predict the future, um, but you've got to do that if you're going to produce a discounted cash flow valuation. And the third example is also from Eurostar, which is, I think we've seen, seen the sort of examples here that as you put a higher discount rate, the value of something looks less. And so we were quite curious about the why, why the government was selling a preference share and using a market discount rate. And that, that's important because this is future tax receipts. Uh, so we, we set out this chart which infuriated the shareholder executive that we, we put the zero discount rate that some of the survey respondents is advocating at 243 right at the top. And then you've got the government hold valuation which was applied to the shares in Eurostar, the risky bit, 12.2%. It takes you down to £158 million. Pounds. Um, and then the sale price that was agreed, 172, is somewhere in between. I mean, it's, there's, no, there's no great science to this. It's a negotiation at the end of the day. But it does show you that in a much shorter time period, these discount rates that are banded around make a huge difference to how much money the government receives for its shares. Um, and we're obviously keen that the Public Accounts Committee understands discount rates so that they can reach their own conclusion on whether these transactions are, are worth doing or not. Just, just sticking with Eurostar a minute, though, um, and I'm not going to go through all the, the numbers on here. The, the point really is you can get to the same valuation with a very wide range of discount rates. And then there's a curiosity here, as I think it's kind of more out of the sort of Mad Hatter's Tea Party. You might as well start with 10%, because you know if you go there from from anything from 17 down to to eight and a half, it really you know. You could use any discount rate here. If you're just trying to get to the same number, which is really three sets of experts all deciding to agree with each other, they've got a set of different assumptions, but actually it's not, it's not driven by the discount rate. I think the discount rate is being just squeezed in there to, um, you know, just to, to make the numbers match up. And, and so that, there's some real problems here that, that we felt were worth highlighting. 
Um, the, the other assumptions that have gone in to the to models are clearly, um, if you're a valuation expert, you're worried about whether there's a terminal value on, on, your, um, on your discounted cash flow model. Those of you probably not so technically minded, just, just the fact that you can only forecast out for, let's say, five or ten years, and then you have to imagine what's going to happen for the rest of eternity. So you put that little number on the end, and that can have a big impact on your, your final result. Um, and then the other aspect, going back to that earlier sli slide, is the fact that if you assume competition is going to come into the, the Eurostar business, then effectively you'll end up with a lower cash flow. All of these models assume that there will be competition, um, but, but actually there's some doubt about that. It's actually very difficult to set up a competing train service. So if there isn't competition on that train line, arguably these valuations are too low. Um, and actually, Eurostar sold for almost double those valuations. So there could be, it could be some difference of view simply about whether there's going to be competition or not, rather than what the discount rate is. Um, and just as a kind of skipping across now, and I apologise for kind of going across so many different examples, but they're all there to read if you like. Um, we, what we've got here is, is a kind of, the sort of how, how long should you hold a share for if you're the government bailing out a business? And what you've got on the red line is the share price of the Lloyds Bank. And what you've got in the yellow bar is you've got a, a, the flat bits so having no discount rate. And the, the, as, the, as the line diverges upwards, it shows the government's cost of financing that investment. So if you, if you ignore discount rates, when you sell a little bit of the shares, it comes down. But the longer you hold an investment, the opportunity cost of the government, because it's had to borrow money, essentially, to do that, means that you have to show that little tranche widening. Um, and as we see it today, um, the share price is sort of in between. So the value is probably a little bit less than if you put the discount rates for government borrowing in, and a little bit more than if you ignore the discount rates altogether. And obviously when you, when your government presents its success, it ignores that, that uh, opportunity cost when it, when it feels like it, because it flatters the outcome. Um, I should say that we're, you know, we're, at the NEO we're looking at the moment at some other mortgage uh, sales. So, so as well as the Lloyds Bank share sale, there's the Northern Rock and Bradford and Bingley bailout. And, and those are mortgages. So we've got a, a, a similar exercise underway at the moment to see whether the, the sale was good value. But if we take across now into to the regulatory space, the, the one, of, one of the issues that uh, regulators have is, is the problem of actually guessing what the cost of borrowing will be and then setting their price controls on, on accordingly uh, to, to, uh, to set the price for, for the water bills. Um, and what we've just plotted on the chart there is the fact that as, as the off-what regulators have set the price of debt at different points in time, these are the, uh, make sure this works, it's the, the price control reviews in the red and the yellow bars there are set for a five-year period. And the game that the regulated companies are then playing is to borrow at a lower rate than, than the regulator has set. So, again, the challenge here for, for regulators is to understand what the market will be. And as you see there from, from a, a line chart that uh, it's got the, the index of debt, similar point that Michael was making at the beginning is that the cost of borrowing has actually decreased during a, a much shorter time period, actually just over the, over the 2008 to 15 period. But as, as Ofwat sat and sort of thought about the cost of borrowing, 
Unfortunately, given its own uh, limited uh, review into the future, it's got this wrong. Actually, the cost of borrowings run much lower than what is expected. And a lot of the benefit of that actually flows to the water company's shareholders rather than to consumers. So I guess if you want to hedge your bets, you need to buy shares in the water company and hopefully uh, take the benefit one way or the other. So just, just to summarise uh, on that, I think you know, our, our observation is that governments using discount rates, particularly when it decides to invest, some of the earlier discussions there, you know, well into the future it needs to make those decisions, but it's also using it whether to sell, when it decides to sell assets. And from our, our observation, it's taking a fairly short-termist view about discount rates in order to justify selling to, to, um, to release, release cash today. There's clearly a cost then to future taxpayers and consumers when, when those, those businesses are no longer in the public sector. Uh, regulators are using discount rates when they set the price limits for, for the natural monopolies. And of course investors use the discount rates when they buy and sell the shares in the companies. And I guess our, our sort of overall observations on this are it's clearly important to be using discount rates. It's, a, it's an essential part of the, the sort of methods that each of these parties are using but it can be subject to various biases and incentives which can cause strange outcomes or problems when, when you look at it from a, from a taxpayer's point of view. For more information, please go to the Gresham College website, www.gresham.ac.uk.